So we're back in Acts chapter 10. And in the early life of the New Testament church, God used the apostle Peter, who was a Jew, to graphically demonstrate his promise of salvation for the world, for all the world, for Jews and for Gentiles, for the Jewish nation and for all other nations. That's what the word Gentile means, remember, nation. What we see happening in Acts chapter 10 would be what many today would call racial reconciliation. The Bible never speaks in those terms. You do realize that. The Bible never speaks in the terms of racial reconciliation. It speaks in terms of the one human race being reconciled to the one holy God. And man's reconciliation to God through Jesus Christ, the walls of division are broken down. In our reconciliation with God in Christ, all men are to be reconciled with one another. The human race is brought together as one new man in Christ where there is neither Greek nor Jew, circumcised nor uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave nor free. But Christ is all and in all. This is the gospel. This is true reconciliation. So let's read these verses. Acts chapter 10 verses 44 through 48. While Peter was still speaking these words, the Holy Spirit fell on those who heard the word. And those of the circumcision who believed were astonished, as many as came with Peter, because the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out on the Gentiles also. For they heard them speak with tongues and magnify God. Then Peter answered, Can anyone forbid water that these should not be baptized who have received the Holy Spirit? Just as we have. And he commanded them to be baptized in the name of the Lord. Then they asked him to stay a few days. Father, we thank you for the gospel. We thank you for this account of your spirit being poured out upon the Gentiles. Proof that your promises given to your people throughout the history of the world. Throughout the scripture, the promise that you would save humankind, that you would save all men, regardless of their skin color, of their nation, of origin, that salvation is for all the nations. We thank you for this promise given to us and made real to us in Jesus. Help us, God, today in the world we live in with all of its troubles, with all of the division taking place. Help us be your church, your people that stand as a beacon of unity and love in Jesus Christ. The only place we can truly be reconciled to God and to one another. Father, we thank you for the gospel. May it save us. May it set us free. May it change us and change our world. In Jesus' name, amen. So Peter is preaching the gospel. So by the time we get to verse 44 in Acts chapter 10, he's already in the house and he is beginning to tell them about Jesus. He's preaching the gospel, telling of the Messiah, 
written in the scripture declaring whoever trusts in Jesus will receive the remission of sins. But God did not wait for Peter to finish his sermon and give an altar call. God interrupted Peter. God interrupted all of those in that house when he poured out his spirit as Peter is declaring the gospel. You do realize that God can interrupt any of us at any moment of our life. God interrupted and he abolished the status quo, the accepted norm when he poured out his spirit on the Gentiles gathered in that house. As we said before, God literally changed the world when that event occurred. The outpouring of God's Spirit on the Gentiles was a promise kept. The promise of God to save the nations, all of them, is found throughout the Scripture. Even though that promise is found throughout the Scripture, the outpouring of God's Spirit on the Gentiles was an astonishment for the Jews. This was the promise of the Father, not only to the Jews, but to the world. Listen to Isaiah. Isaiah 42, verse 1 and verse 6. <clears throat> Behold, my servant whom I uphold, my elect one in whom my soul delights, I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the Gentiles. Verse 6. That word Gentiles, what does it mean? Nations. I will bring forth. He will bring forth justice to the nations. Verse 6, I the Lord have called you in righteousness and will hold your hand. I will keep you and give you as a covenant to the people, as a light to the Gentiles, as a light to the nations. Isaiah 49 verse 6, indeed he says, it is too small a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to restore the preserved ones of Israel. I will also give you as a light to the nations that you should be my salvation to the ends of the earth. The promise of God has always been to save the world. Not every single human being but every kind of human being. You do understand the difference. The Bible makes it very clear. Many people have and will continue to reject Jesus. But that does not take away from the reality, from the promise that God will save the world. In other words, God did not send Jesus to just save the Jewish nation, defined by even the borders given as a promise to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Jesus came to save the world. And that is exactly what Jesus declared when he said, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. As astonishing as it may have been, it could not be denied that promise to save the world, to save every kind of human being, that promise was seen, poured out that day in the house of Cornelius when God poured his spirit on those Gentiles. 
the Gentiles had received the Spirit in the same manner as the Jews did on the day of Pentecost. It could not be more clear. God was making a statement for all to see and for all to know, though they did not yet fully grasp it. There was no longer Jew or Gentile, but Christ is all and in all. It was a sovereign act of God's grace. Cornelius and his household gathered there, intently listening to the words of Peter, suddenly and unknown to them, without warning, God pours out his spirit on the Gentiles assembled in that room. Now Jew and Gentile alike had received the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. The words of the prophet Joel, quoted by Peter on the day of Pentecost, rang even more true that day in the house of Cornelius. This is what Peter declared on the day of Pentecost, recorded for us in Acts 2.17, quoting the prophet Joel. And it shall come to pass in the last days, says God, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. God indeed had poured out his spirit on all flesh, not only on male and female, young and old, free and slave, but on Jew and Gentile. This is the ultimate meaning of all flesh. When Jesus proclaimed God's love for the world, recorded for us in John 3.16, this is what Jesus was proclaiming. That God loved the world, every nation, every kind of human being in it. Not just Jews, but Gentiles also. God would no longer distinguish people as Jew or Gentile. Jesus came to save the world that God so loved. There is no Jewish church. There is no Gentile church. There is only one church. There is only one body. There is only one Israel. They are all one in Christ. The scripture teaches us that he has created in himself one new man from the two, thus making peace. Listen to the words of the apostle Paul. Such glorious words in Ephesians chapter 2 verses 14 through 18. Paul writes, For he himself is our peace, who has made both one, and has broken down the middle wall of separation, that's Jew and Gentile, having abolished in his flesh the enmity that is the law of commandments contained in ordinances, so as to create in himself one new man from the two, thus making peace, and that he might reconcile them both to God in one body through the cross, thereby putting to death the enmity. And he came and preached peace to you Gentiles who were afar off and to those Jews who were near. That's what he meant by those far off and those near. For through him we both have access by one spirit to the Father." Cornelius and his household ceased being Gentiles that day and became children of God, born of the Spirit in the Lord Jesus Christ. Through faith in Jesus, they became members of the body of Christ. They became accepted in the Father, not by what they did, but by what God did in his grace, by saving them by giving them his spirit, by causing them to become new creations in Jesus Christ. 
So it is with us and with all who are born again of the Spirit, who now have their life in Jesus. Galatians 2.20, verses 21, 20 and 21. Paul writes, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not set aside the grace of God, for if righteousness comes through the law, then Christ died in vain. You see, before the outpouring of the Spirit, it's not that Gentiles could not be saved. It's that Gentiles had to become Jews. Now, they couldn't change their ethnicity, so they had to go through a ceremony, a very extensive ceremony of becoming pure and clean, ritually being baptized, and that baptism was a symbol that they had put away the old, and they now identified with this new identity. They were, for all practical purposes, no longer Gentiles. They didn't identify with the nations. They identified with God's nation, God's people. And this is what the church tried to do in its early days before there were Gentiles who had the Spirit poured out upon them. It was just like it always was. You can become a proselyte, you can convert, but you've got to become a Jew. And then something unforeseen happened. Peter gets called to the house of this Gentile, and while he's preaching the gospel, God, God, of all people, God, pours out his Spirit on Gentile flesh. And Peter and the other Jews gathered there are astonished because God, they knew exactly what God had just done. Because those Gentiles received the Spirit the same way they did. And they knew very clearly what God was declaring in this. That salvation is for the Gentiles. And guess what those Gentiles didn't have to do? They didn't have to go through any ceremony. They didn't have to keep any law. They didn't have to even get baptized before God poured out his Spirit. God just did it. And then Peter says to his other Jewish friends there who are in astonishment, can we forbid water? Can we not let, the, I mean, these guys, we have to baptize them because God has done this. God took away the distinction. God took away the division. Christ did not die in vain. We are saved by grace through faith in Jesus. When God saves us, he makes us one with his son and with each other. Whether we're Jew or Gentile or not. Whether we're black or white, it doesn't matter. If we're in Christ, we are one with Christ and we are one with one another. Those things that once divided us are no more in Christ. Truly, if any man be in Christ, they are now a new creation. The old is passed away. Behold, all things are made new. Now, all things are of God. This is the teaching of the Scripture. The only distinction God sees now is in the Spirit. Whether a person is in Christ or not in Christ. That's the only distinction God sees now. If we are in Christ... We are known by the Father. It is not whether we're born a Jew or a Gentile. It's whether we're born again of the Spirit. God determines our birth. Anybody here determine your birth? God determines 
Our skin color, anybody here determine your skin color aside from going outside and getting sunburned and tanned? God determines our nation of origin. God determines everything, all of those things that we have no control over. You can color your hair. I can wear a toupee. I can get hair implants. I'm still bald, though. You can do all kinds of things to yourself to change your appearance, but you're still who you are. You can say you're one gender when you were born another. Guess what? You are who you are by the grace of God. You can call yourself what you want. You can identify as anything you want, but you can't change what God has done. You don't have the power to do that. And people say, well, I can't help it. It's how I was born. I'm not even going to argue that. You know why? Because this is exactly why the Bible says you must be born again. Well, I was born this way. Exactly right. So you must be born again. I was born this way. I was born in sin. That's why I had to be born again. We're all born in sin. We can't justify our sinfulness by saying, it's how I was born. I was born this way. It's exactly why Jesus said, you must be born again. And when we're born again, we become new creations in Christ Jesus. This is the only distinction God sees now. It's in the spirit. All of those identity factors, all of those points of contention and division are put away in Jesus. For when we are born again by the Spirit, all other identities outside of Christ go away. Now in Christ, we are one in Him. We are one with one another. That's how we are to now live as reconciled to God and reconciled to one another in Jesus Christ. We are commanded to be reconciled to God. And in that commandment to be reconciled to God, there is the commandment that we must be reconciled to one another. This is why John writes in his first letter, if you say that you love God but hate your brother, the love of God is not in you and you are a liar. Because if I have been reconciled to God, I cannot hate my brother. Because if I have peace with God and my brother has peace with God and we are one in Christ, there cannot be a division there. When your body is fighting against itself, trying to kill itself, you know what we call that? That's what cancer is. That's what cancer does. Cancer is your body thinking that it's doing a good thing and it's actually killing you. There's not peace. There's not a reconciliation there. There is a cancer in the body of Christ when the body of Christ is not reconciled to one another and we're dividing over things that we should not divide over. There are things we should divide over. But there are things we should not divide over. We should divide over false teaching. In other words, we should not say, well, it's okay if you have that false teaching. It's okay if you believe that heresy. It's okay if you think Jesus is just one of many ways to God. I think you'll make it to heaven. No. 
It's okay if you believe Jesus was just a great man, but you don't acknowledge him as the Son of God, as the Lord God Almighty. No. We have to divide over that. There are essential doctrines we must divide over because they define us. But when we start dividing over things like the color of people's skin or their social status or their political party or anything like that, that's not good. Now, we need to point out truth to people. We might need to help them understand why some of those things they identify with or embrace are bad. And we take them to the Scripture and say, this is what God says in His Word. This is why we need to repent of this sin. This is why we need to let go of these things because they're not consistent with who God is. We have an obligation to do that. That doesn't mean we don't love each other. That doesn't mean we're not reconciled to one another. In fact, it means just the opposite. If we do love one another and we are reconciled to one another, then, then we have an obligation to do those things with our brothers and our sisters to point them to God and to his truth. Listen to the words of the Apostle Paul. He's writing this to the church at Corinth, the church filled with the very types of divisions that we see in our culture today. And the solution to the problem was not regarding men even more according to the flesh. The solution to the problem was obedience to the command that we be reconciled to God. Paul writes these words, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 16 through 21. Therefore, from now on, we regard no one according to the flesh. You should mark that in your Bible. We don't regard men any longer according to the flesh. Even though we have known Christ according to the flesh, yet now we know him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. Now, now all things are of God who has reconciled us to himself through Jesus Christ and has given us the ministry of reconciliation. Do you see that? God has given us the ministry of reconciliation. That is that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not imputing their trespasses to them, and has committed to us the word of reconciliation. Now then... We are ambassadors for Christ as though God were pleading through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf. Be reconciled to God. For he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us. That we might become the righteousness of God in him. I implore you. In fact, I command you, be reconciled to God. This is the solution to the problem. We're regarding men according to the flesh, and we're making the distinctions more and more and more and more prominent. We're doing the exact opposite of what the Bible commands us to do. We are to no longer regard anyone according to the flesh. That means we do not discriminate based on the flesh. That means we do not commit injustice by punishing unjustly or favoring unjustly according to the flesh. If we are to regard no man according to the flesh, we are to no longer discriminate based on the flesh. Many would say that is too simplistic. In fact, I've had people laugh at me when I tell them this is the answer. The scripture has the answer. The gospel has the answer. They just laugh too simplistic. 
That's not going to work. That's all fine and good. I know what the Bible says, but that's not good enough. Listen, when someone tells you what the Bible says is not good enough, that's a problem. When someone who professes to be a Christian tells you what the Bible says is not good enough, that's an even worse problem. Because there should be no Christian saying what the Bible says is not good enough. There should be no one professing faith in Christ laughing at presenting a scriptural solution to the problem of sin. But that is exactly what we have taking place in the world today, in the church today. If we are to regard no man according to the flesh, then we are to no longer discriminate based on the flesh. It is very simple, but it is also very difficult to carry out in our flesh. If our focus is on the flesh, if we're trying to reconcile things according to the flesh, it's going to be very difficult to carry out this commandment in the flesh. It's like trying to fight a fire by pouring gasoline on it. And you keep saying, I just don't have enough gasoline yet. I just need to keep pouring gasoline on the fire to put it out. That's exactly what's happening in our culture. When we are distinguishing in the flesh and then trying to magnify and define even more distinctions in the flesh in order to create reconciliation. It's impossible. It is absolutely impossible. And we're seeing the impossibility of it played out. This is why God gave us his spirit to change our hearts, to empower us to walk in the spirit and no longer fulfill the lusts of the flesh. That's what discrimination is. It is the lust of the flesh. It is preferring one kind of flesh over another. It's seeking to use the flesh to fight what we think a problem is. God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not imputing their trespasses to them. And he has committed to us the word of reconciliation. This is what was happening as God poured out the Spirit upon the Gentiles. God demonstrated his reconciliation and his peace purchased in Jesus Christ. God now regards no man according to the flesh, but makes both Jew and Gentile new creations by the Spirit. Both are now one in Christ, and now Christ is all and in all. If God is not imputing our trespasses against us, how can we not forgive those who have trespassed against us? This is, in fact, what Jesus commands us to pray and to do. Forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. This is how Jesus taught us to pray. Forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. You notice Jesus didn't say to pray this way. Forgive us our trespasses, God, and I'll think about forgiving those who trespass against us. Forgive us our trespasses, God, but I can't forgive those who have trespassed against me because the trespass was too great. There's not a... There's not an option here. You either forgive or you're not forgiven. There's no other option. 
Forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. Much of the uncivil unrest we see in our nation stems from the abandonment of the command of Jesus. We not only refuse to be reconciled to one another, we refuse to be reconciled to God. That's really the true problem. Because we refuse to be reconciled to God, we refuse to forgive as we have been forgiven. We impute past and present trespasses. We seek the vengeance that belongs only to God. And don't confuse vengeance with justice. Because God has established law and order so that justice can be carried out. That doesn't mean there's not injustice. There is. We don't live in a perfect world. And the reason we don't live in a perfect world is because it's filled with imperfect, sinful, totally depraved human beings. We don't just need better environment, better upbringing, more money, better education. All of those things are great. And they are helpful. But they will not solve the fundamental problem that we're dealing with and that we're talking about here. Until we are reconciled with God, we cannot be reconciled with one another. And we will not be. No matter our motive, no matter our intention, if we persist in creating division where God says there is no division, we will continue to suffer the consequences of our sin. When sin instead of righteousness, hear me church, when sin instead of righteousness becomes the instrument we use to right the wrongs and heal the wounds, we are in outright rebellion against God. Willingly or unwittingly rebellious, it does not matter. The consequences of our rebellion will be the same. And we are seeing those consequences manifesting in our nation today. When we reject earthly authority, earthly law and order, ordained by God, we can know that we have rejected God. For all authority comes from God. Law and order is from God to establish peace and prosperity in our land. Sin is not the way to redress injustice. And that doesn't mean that we don't oppose the authorities. That we don't kick back or push back against the authorities. When the authorities begin to rule unjustly, when the authorities begin to rule unrighteously, when there is no longer redress or grievance in this earthly realm, we appeal to heaven. If you come to my house right now, I've got two flags flying. One is the flag of our nation. The other is a flag that says an appeal to heaven, which was the flag that George Washington put on all the, the colonial ships of the colonial navy. Because regard, in spite of what they teach erroneously in school today. The colonies did not rebel against the crown. It was the crown that rebelled against its own contract, its own promise. And the only redress the colonies had was to oppose the authority that would not, that actually laughed at them and said, you guys are all the way across the ocean. We don't have to do anything and you can't make us. I'm not saying that you never oppose the authority when the authority puts itself in the place of God. 
But we are not living in a nation where there is not a redress, where there is not a process of grievance. Justice still rules in this nation. People who commit murder are still arrested and they will be prosecuted. I'm not saying that those things don't fall through the cracks. I'm not saying that there aren't real people who hate other people and who will unjustly give a pass to some people. We see it in our political system every day. The greatest wickedness in our nation begins at that realm. And the reason we're seeing it on the streets, lived out in neighborhoods, is because we have put up with it at a national level, at a state level. The very people that are supposed to be blind, justice is supposed to be blind. The very people that are supposed to be making sure that the laws apply equally, guess what they've done? They apply equally to all you peons, but they don't apply to us because we're special. We have stars on our bellies, and you guys don't. So we can do what we want, and you can't do anything about it because we make the laws. You wonder why there's injustice in our nation? You wonder why these things are happening? Because we have put up with that. And God has given us a method of, of redress to address these grievances. It's called elections. It's called voting. And when we go to vote in November, we ought, to, we ought to vote all of the injustice out. And we ought to vote in the people who profess to trust in the Lord and in his word. There are no perfect people. There are no perfect politicians. There are no perfect systems. But we by far live in the most perfect there is on the face of this earth. There is a reason why people are literally dying to get into this country. With all of its problems, there is no place like this nation. And don't think for one moment man can take credit for that because the reason that we have what we have in this nation is because of the gospel of Jesus Christ. It is because of the grace of God and there is no other reason. And when we reject God and when we reject his gospel, we will see those things begin to disappear and be destroyed. And that is exactly what we are seeing happen in our nation right now. When sin instead of righteousness becomes the instrument we use to right the wrong and heal the wounds, we are in outright rebellion against God. And it doesn't matter what our motive, what the intention is, good or not, we can never justify sinfulness. The division we see today comes from men, not from God. God has reconciled all things to himself in Jesus Christ. And he has given to us the ministry of reconciliation. God is allowing these divisions and this unrest to occur. occur. Don't think that he is not. He is. He is sovereign over it. He has power over it. We will either bow to the pressure of the world or we will bow in humility under the mighty hand of God. Do you not see what's happening? We are literally having a nationwide argument about whether people should bow or not. Is that not... It would be comical if, if it was not so serious. We are literally having a nationwide argument about whether we should bow or not, and why we should bow, and what bowing represents. That's not an accident. 
That is the manifestation, manifestation of our rejection of God. Our willingness, our desire to bow to the world so that the world will accept us. You realize there are people bowing now just to be accepted. Just to keep their jobs. Just to be part of the movement. And they don't even know what the movement is. We need, to, we need to really wake up and see what's happening. We will either bow to the pressure of the world or we will bow in humility under the mighty hand of God. And if we bow to God, he promises to lift us up. If we bow to the world, there is only destruction. Have you noticed how many people apologize for their past wrongs and the apology doesn't matter? Fire them, cut them off, destroy them. They deserve to be destroyed. That is not the work of God. That's the work of the enemy. There is both wrath and judgment at work. The wrath of the enemy to destroy God's people and God's plan can simultaneously be God's judgment upon a nation that has rejected him and his gospel. And I promise you both are happening right now. The enemy is, he didn't just become enraged, he's been enraged. We're studying Revelation on Wednesday nights and we're fixing to see that when that dragon was cast out of heaven because he could not defeat God and his Christ, when he's cast out of heaven, the cry from heaven is, Woe to the inhabitants of the earth, for the dragon has been cast down to the earth, and he is enraged. He has been enraged. This is not new. What has held him in check has been the faithfulness of the church, the preaching of the gospel. The church has departed her faithfulness. The church has departed the gospel and we begin to embrace the world, bow to the world. Long before football players were bowing during the national anthem, the church now for decades, many decades, has been bowing to the world and the pressure of the world to water down her gospel, to reject truth for philosophy to embrace things that heal the wound lightly because they're more tolerable than the things that will actually heal the wound. All that we're seeing here today is just the result of the things that were taking place that we could not see, that were not reported on. This is not new. This is the product of a long, slow decline that is now plummeting very quickly into the abyss. The intention of the enemy is to kill, to steal, and to destroy. God's intention is to bring his judgment of sin in order to bring correction and ultimately his blessing to his people, however painful it may be. As quick as we may be plummeting into the abyss, don't ever think for one moment that God cannot reverse this thing. 
Don't think for one moment that God cannot reach down and pull us out of the abyss. And he will. If his people called by his name will humble themselves and pray and seek his face and turn from their wicked ways. If we will do that, if the church will do that, God will heal our land. That's his promise and God's not a liar. He will keep his promise. Just like he did when he poured out the spirit on the Gentiles that day with Peter in the house of Cornelius. God will keep his promise to heal our land if we will do what God tells us to do. If we will obey him. We are called to love as Jesus loved. We are called to love our brother and our sister without discrimination of skin color, ethnicity, social status, or anything else. We've been given the ministry and the word of reconciliation. It is the gospel. The church is to be out bringing reconciliation the way God did through the gospel. A gospel that was given to all because all lives matter. When Peter preached to Cornelius and the other Gentiles, God opened the door for the gospel to go to the nation, to the utter ends of the earth, and it has gone there. Just because God opened the door does not mean that it all went smoothly and everyone was on board and in one accord, because they weren't. The apostle Paul was arrested, sent to Rome, because the Jews tried to kill him because of his preaching to the Gentiles. There were challenges then, and we read about them throughout the New Testament writings. There are still challenges today, and there will continue to be challenges. The reason is that man is born sinful. He's born hateful. He's born opposing God. This is man's condition until he is born again. The gospel is the power of God to salvation for all men. The gospel is true reconciliation. It is true justice. It is truly good news. In case you haven't noticed, there is very little good news today. It's hard to find. Actually, it's not. Open your Bible. Read the Word of God. It's filled with good news. It is the good news. This is why we have a Bible reading challenge. This is why we encourage you to read your Bible every day. Because you're inundated with bad news. And the only good news that really counts is not the nuggets they give you from the news media. It is God's good news. It is his word. It is his gospel. Turn to Jesus. Turn to his gospel. It is good news that can save us, that will save us. It alone has the power to bring reconciliation and justice and peace. It alone has the power to save us and to heal our land. In Christ, we are made one. There is no longer Jew or Gentile, black or white, brown or yellow or red. Christ is all and in all. By grace through faith, we are brought into union with Christ and made one and accepted in the Father. This union and this unity is exactly what we celebrate each week we come to the Lord's table. This is exactly what Paul meant in his letter to the Corinthians when he said, discern the body of Christ. He wasn't talking about discerning the piece of bread. He was talking about looking around at all of the diversity, at all the people, Jew and Gentile, young and old, slave and free, all of that, the diversity of the body, discern the body and understand that we are all made part of the body by the grace of God, not by our birth, but by our new birth, our rebirth by the Spirit in Jesus Christ.
We are one in him. That's how we're to live our life now. That's how we're to love now. That's the witness we're to give to this world. This is the gospel. This is our only hope. Christian, as you trust Jesus, come to the table. Let's all stand. What God has spoken by his word and the work of his spirit in our hearts is far more powerful than anything we can do. But we must, however, always remember that in God's grace, he has chosen to speak and to work through us. So it's not in our power, it's not in our might, but it's his power and his might working through us. We must never minimize what God puts in our heart to say or to do. We are to measure all things by his word and trust the leading of his spirit, just like Peter and Cornelius did. We are commanded to look unto Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith. God is the author of the story he is crafting. As God writes his story, we must know that our lives matter. In fact, every life matters. Born and unborn. Old, young, it doesn't matter how you want to categorize it. Our lives affect the lives of all those around us. Our lives matter in obvious and in direct ways. And our lives matter in obscure and indirect ways. Our lives matter in ways we may never know until we find ourselves like Peter did in the middle of a divine appointment he could never have imagined or planned on his own. In fact, we will never know just how much our lives mattered until we are in glory. Not one of us knows exactly how our life today will impact our world tomorrow or next week or next year or next century. Just know that it does. It does in God's plan and in God's purpose. As we see with Peter, a simple time in prayer can turn into an event that changes the course of history. This has happened in countless ways and it can and it will happen again. It's not for us to know how or when or even if God will work in us in such a way through our life. We must only know that he can if he so chooses. Whatever part we play, we are a part of his story. That is why our life matters. That is why... We should live our lives in that way and reflect on those things. We know God is still writing his story because we are all still here and there are more coming every moment. More coming into this world. His story goes on and it will continue until he returns and into eternity. Thankfully, he truly is the author and the finisher of our faith. He is a good author writing a glorious story that includes us all. That is good news, especially for those who belong to him. To his goodness, to his grace, and to his will, may we all say amen.